Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where L is for Licence to Kill, the 1989 James Bond film starring Timothy Dalton in his second and sadly final outing as 007. My name is Tom Butler and joining me is a man who's earned it so he'll keep it. It's my old buddy, Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. And this week we have a double agent in our midst making his James Bond A to Z podcast debut. It's Agent Scott from the Spy Hards podcast. Hello. Well, you clearly scraped the bottom of the barrel and then you dialed 888-LOVE. And so therefore I jumped on the wave crest and I sailed right to you. Well, I'm glad to have you here, Scott, because you're a man who enjoys a laboured pun as much as I do. So um, I appreciate you stepping into the breach to take a look at Licence to Kill. This episode is is purely about that. We did a, a, two episodes on Timothy Dalton and his career, so uh, there's some stuff that we may cross over with on that one. So apologies if you've heard that. But um, this will be uh, an episode covering the making of the film. But let's f- just kick things off first with your introduction to Licence to Kill and where it sort of stands in your, in your standing. So Brendan, why don't you kick things off with, with your sort of thoughts and feelings on the film? Until recently, I think it's a Bond film that I've ignored, I would say. And and I do, I've ignored Dalton's tenure until until we've started doing this. I've really, you know, take, taken a shine to especially this film. And I would I would love to see this on the big screen. Well, I don't want to give spoilers for later on, but it's uh, I, I've, I look upon it favourably. How about you, Scott? I'm, I'm probably the same boat as Brendan. I was a golden eye baby. I just thought Brosnan was the best and never really went back too much. The odd Connery, the odd Roger Moore. But I'd heard stories of the fabled Dalton era and how it failed miserably. And, and so don't look at those films. And then I did like a big viewing of them a few years back. I watched them all in a row and I was like, hey, these are pretty good. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm in the same boat as well. I remember um, visiting, watching them uh, with the other ones when I was younger, but not really... You know, they weren't Roger Moore, they weren't Sean Connery, they weren't they weren't Pierce Brosnan, and so it was easy to overlook. Like like on Her Majesty's Secret Service, I think is one that you you know you wouldn't necessarily keep on tape. And it's weird because I would have been old enough to remember this one coming out, but I don't remember this one coming out at all. And it's a film that every time I watch it, it seems I seem to get more and more from it. I'm more impressed by its stunts. I'm more impressed with it, the bold storylines, the characters. It's just a complex. Well, it's got complex 
morals and there's a lot of grey area in it. But also it's just a rollicking good story as well. Unlike, I think, Living Daylights, which meanders on its way to to its conclusion, this is laser focused and and also is benefited from having some of the best stunts, I think, in 80s action cinema, I think. And, and, and some of the stunts we'll talk about still resonate to this day. I mean, there's a lot of films I could talk about that seem to have ripped it off completely. And so it's just good that it's now, you know, with Bond fans getting the, the, the credit that it deserves. But um, why don't we kick things off with Licence to Kill with a little plot synopsis, which I lifted from the James Bond website. So en route to the wedding of his friend Felix Leiter in Florida, Bond and Leiter take a detour to arrest drug baron Franz Sanchez. It doesn't take long, however, for Sanchez to break himself out of jail and kill the new Mrs. Leiter and maim Felix. Bond seeks revenge, with his license revoked by the British government and with the aid of CIA operative Pam Bouvier, as well as MI6 gadget specialist Q, they bring Sanchez and his entire corrupt drug empire to its knees. So that's the synopsis. I will say on this one with research, there's a couple of really good sources on this that we will be referring to a lot. One of them is Sally Hibbins' book, The Making of License to Kill. And another one I've been looking at a lot is the MI6 Confidential License to Kill uh, special that they released recently, John Glenn Ultimate Bond. So yeah, credit to those. But yeah, this is an interesting film because it's the last one really overseen by Cubby Broccoli and the last one with Timothy Dalton and the last one with John Glenn. It's sort of the end of an era. Um, I would say it's the, you know, it's the dividing line between the classic Bond era and the modern Bond era. But what can you tell us about the time that it was made, Brendan? So in terms of the late 80s, uh, Living Daylights had just been made. They got to work pretty much straight away on, on what, what they wanted to come next. So Cubby and Michael G. Wilson and Richard Maybaum, they all started discussing where they wanted it to go and they opted for a realistic style. They wanted to see the darker side of Bond. So if we look at films, other films around that time, these are the top 10 grossing of 1989. Born on the 4th of July, Little Mermaid, Ghostbusters 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Lethal Weapon 2, Dead Poet Society, Look Who's Talking, and what do you think's in the top three? Any ideas? Batman. Batman, yep. That's number two. Another one's got a former Bond. The Untouchables? Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Ah, of course, of course. That was number one. It took $474 million. And then number three, Back to the Future Part Two. So there's a smattering of sequels in there. But Lethal Weapon is the one that sort of jumps out, really. And, and, and Batman to a certain extent. Especially Batman coming out ten days after License to Kill. Yeah, it was it was huge. So, yeah, I mean, that was quite dark in its tone as well. So interesting that that's where Bond was, was sitting, those sort of films uh, coming out. And the budget on License to Kill was $32 million. So it was quite a strict budget. And uh, this was because of the overspending on, unbelievably, Moonraker. <laughs> Ten years before, 1979, they're still tightening the purse strings because they'd overspent on Moonraker which is crazy. So this this obviously takes a, a, a huge impact on, on the rest of the the production, on, on how we see this film put together. I never really understood that. Do they owe money to someone for what they spent on Moonraker? Is it an MGM thing, I guess? I, I was reading about this, and one quote I had was that they were still paying off the interest from the loans they had to take out to pay for the overage on Moonbreaker. That makes sense. Right. Yeah. It just seems crazy, doesn't it? Yeah. A decade and they're still paying for it. Well, I guess um, to add to that as well, I mean, as one of the problems they had with funding this film is they had to look at potentially saving money. 
And to do that, they looked at moving it out of Pinewood. And so, I mean, we'll look at where it's filmed a little bit later on in the podcast. But the first thing to talk about is there was a big change in law here in the UK. And they basically got rid of the Eddie Levy, which is basically a tax that was put on all British films. And it would go into a pot and then go into funding films, basically. It was like a, it would help everyone raise the boats, that sort of stuff. And so that was taken away. So there was less funding for British films. So they had even less funding for this film that's meant to be bigger than the last one. So they really had to tighten the purse strings. So to do that, they started shopping around for places to do the film. And they basically ended up in Mexico City. Now, there was already a Latin feel to the story as it was beginning to come to pass. So they ended up in Mexico City, a place called Churubusco Studios. They did actually end up going back to Pinewood, though, for post-production and some sound work. So they didn't completely escape it. But yeah, the first ever Bond film to not be filmed at Pinewood. That's a hell of a thing. Yeah, interesting that they yeah they that they had to go away. I'm glad that you brought the tax stuff up, though, Scott. You really slotted straight into the team with uh, oh, some yeah. tax banter. We love a bit of ta- tax chat. But as Brenda mentioned, um, that they really wanted to give this film a harder edge. So this is their 16th James Bond film. They've been releasing them like clockwork um, ever since uh, Doctor No. But this one was slightly different because it was the first one that had been written specifically for Timothy Dalton. So where we'd gone from Sean Connery to Roger Moore and Roger Moore films became a little bit more sort of goofy as they became tailored to Roger Moore. Dalton, what Dalton wanted was something that was darker to suit his take on James Bond. So he had been very vocal about wanting to return to the spirit of the early Bond films, like From Russia With Love, which he felt came closest to capturing the spirit of of Ian Fleming. And Michael G. Wilson said, we could not do the same stories with Timothy as with Roger. We have to adapt. With Timothy, we are closer to the Fleming style. Timothy wants to create a character that's much more human, more realistic, and the films then play a bit tougher. And the co-writer on Licence to Kill, Richard Maybaum, long-time Bond writer, he said, I'm very pleased to see the move towards more gritty reality. If the actor does not believe what's happening, the audience will not believe it either. And Timothy certainly has the ability to take the audience with him. So, yeah, um, the film that we got is is quite a bloodthirsty film. It's it's obviously set in this world of drugs and revenge, something we haven't seen a huge amount of um, in, in the Bond world. There's been a bit of it in the past. I mean, Live and Let Die, which is a film we'll refer to a few times, I think, has a drugs edge to it as well but this one is um scarface miami vice it's those sorts of references that we're looking at here so timothy dalton he said it's fascinating to see bond being afraid like any normal person would be to see him being brutal where necessary and it's also good to see his sensitivity challenged so um one way that this film differs from other James Bond films um, is that we see James Bond at the very start of the film off duty. He's very much being James Bond the man rather than being James Bond the spy. And that's just one of the many examples of the, the times where License to Kill does things differently to other Bond films. And I was thinking about this. and you, The only other time I can think of when we see Bond off duty is in No Time to Die, where he's completely retired from the service. Um, there's not many other times that we, we, we see him not on duty. Skyfall as well, I guess, when he's in that bar and he's gone off the grid. Um, but So it's definitely a, um, a, a Daniel Craig sort of um, trope more than more than anyone else. Yeah, that's true, actually. Although I'm just thinking at the start of Diamonds Are Forever, he seems to be quite rogue. You know, he's searching for Blofeld. Yeah, and he's throttling women with bras. Yeah. He's still on the he's still on the job, but I don't I don't know if MI six are, are aware of, of that. 
Cairo. <laughs> Um, I mean, you could tell Dawson was trying to push into the darker side of things. And, you know, the, you guys will be covering the Living Daylights very soon, but you can see that that's built for one particular Bond. This is definitely built for mm. Dalton's version of Bond, this film. He wanted that harder edge, and I think he put a lot of sway on the film to definitely. end up the way it is. And so with this, the original plan was to shoot the film in China as at the time it was unexplored, it hadn't really been seen on screen in the Western world, and Michael G. Wilson actually wrote two treatments for it, and it involved heavily involved China, and pre-production start, was starting to get underway. They, they'd already planned a motorcycle chase that, uh, across the Great Wall of China, and uh, a fight sequence that involved the Terracotta Army in Xi'an. So, you know, they'd, they'd really got to work on that. Unfortunately, the, a film was released called The Last Emperor, in 1987 and the novelty of of these locations started to wear off and also the Chinese authorities they wanted approval over every part of the Bond script so this was seen as a deal breaker so they decided to relocate to South America and there are still remnants of the original sort of planning pre-planning treatment in the in the script with uh, characters of Quang <laughs> The Asian drug dealers who are the the guests of Sanchez in Isthmus City. Now, every Bond film needs a director. And from my research in the past, I've always found that they've, they've asked about, they haven't always known exactly what they wanted or who they wanted. But it seems like from my research, License to Kill, they had their sights set on John Glenn more or less from day one, which is odd. They just kind of knew the guy they wanted and he took it. He was actually part of the the sightseeing tour around China, um, looking at that story. So he was part of that transition into the story that we begin to have now. Um, now, you guys spoke about John Glenn on your G episode, so I won't dive into John Glenn too much. But you know, by this point, this is his fifth film as a director, his last film as a director. I think one thing we can definitely talk about later on is the fact that he comes from a sort of stunts background, editing background, and I think that plays heavily on the finished product of this film. Definitely. I've got a quote from him saying just about sort of his, the visual aspect of Bond and how that's important to him. This is actually from the book you mentioned earlier, Tom. He says, I've always valued my editing experience. It gives me the ability to look at an action sequence, then break it down into small segments for the other people to film. I think that is my strength, being able to delegate and still come in on time. In some ways, I'm a managing director. On set... Allegedly, according to the book as well, John was often seen speeding up the action, condensing lines and sort of adding in pace to the scenes he was directing to try and give it that punchy feel that I think they were trying to capture in this period. They're looking at the lethal weapons out there and things like that. John also said of this film, uh, it's one of the strongest Bond villains he's ever created, which we will talk about Sanchez down the road in the episode as well. John Glenn said License to Kill is among my best Bond films, if not the best film. Absolutely, it's his best film. Yeah. However, I do think the bar is pretty low, unfortunately. Yeah. I think it's definitely his, his, his best, his most confident, his most cohesive of the five that he did. Amazing that he is the, the, the most, the, the, bond, the director who's directed the most Bond films. He directed every Bond film released in the 80s. One thing I've read about him, though, is that the, some of the actors found that he was more interested in the action than the acting itself. And that's kind of a, a common thing, I think, to hear about John Glenn. But when he does action so well, I mean, sometimes it can be forgiving. And, and it can be forgiving, like, that sense. If you trust the actors to do their job, 
then then you can get the great performances out of them. But sometimes if you've got an actor who is less experienced, perhaps like Talisa Soto, then you end up getting a performance which maybe isn't as great as it could be. I did read somewhere that John Landis had been offered uh, to direct, but he didn't like the script. But um, I'm not sure where I read that, but um, I know he'd been involved with The Spy Who Loved Me scripting at one point. Um, so he was obviously someone on their radar. But Well, it's um, I mean, one of those little things you hear about in the trivia world when it comes to Bond. But I'd always heard that there's like tension between Dalton and, and John Glenn, specifically on this film. And I because of what you said there, Tom, because of the focus on stunts and action. But that from what I've read of Timothy Dalton, he quite likes that bit, too. That surprises me, but I do have a quote from Dalton about John Glenn's work on this film specifically. And he says, I think John has got an extraordinary, powerful sense of visual narrative and edits the film superbly. I notice he doesn't say directs the film superbly. (laughs) And I'll leave that to you to ponder. But um, Tom, I think we want to talk about writing the script. Indeed, yes. So when the script was being developed, it was being developed under the name License Revoked. And it would be Richard Maybaum's um, last ever James Bond film that he worked on. He'd been writing the James Bond films right from the very start. So he was joined by Michael G. Wilson to script it. And this would be Michael G. Wilson's fifth and final James Bond writing credit as well. So it's not uh, based on a Fleming book. um, And it's the first uh, James Bond film that takes a title that isn't from a James Bond book as well but it's it does take some cues from Live and Let Die and also the short story The Hildebrand Rarity and as you mentioned there was talk of China as a location for it and then that was sort of um, moved on to America and Peter Lamont he went on a scouting trip across LA Miami Key West and Mexico and that's when they decided that Mexico would be the place that they shot the film And it was there, that idea of shooting in Mexico, that then led them to making the villain a drug dealer. And they landed on Franz Sanchez, who was inspired by drug dealers of the time, Carlos Leda, and also then General Noriega as well. So as a key member of the Writers Guild of America, Richard Maybaum had to go on strike, um, a record length strike, actually, in March 1988, because the the Writers Guild was striking over TV residuals. So although he worked with Michael G. Wilson on the script at the start, he was unable to write the thing itself. So it was left to Michael G. Wilson to write the script all on his own. And Maybaum was so honourable to his the, the guild that he wouldn't even ghostwrite it under an, a pseudonym. He just said, no, I can't do it. But having written the script on his own, Michael G. Wilson, as a gesture of goodwill, gave him co-writing credit on the script. script itself takes influences from Kurosawa's Yojimbo, and this is um, a samurai film where you've got a samurai. He doesn't attack the villain. What he does is he sows the seeds of mistrust and manages to have the villain bring himself down. So that idea of taking the villain down from the inside it's um destroying from within it's a really great concept for a bond film and i wish you know some of that stuff would be done more often so john glenn worked very closely with michael g wilson and richard maybaum on the script development and it was his idea to have the tanker sequence as the finale because that was something that they'd looked at for a pre-title sequence on another film richard maybaum unfortunately later expressed some disappointment in the final film although he hadn't been a writer on it technically i think he was disappointed to have his name associated with it and john glenn said i know dick maybaum was a little little bit disappointed with the film because of the violence mainly and we did miss his guidance i must say 
so yeah so they've got a script in place written by michael g wilson and they are ready with john glenn in place to start gathering the crew together Yeah, so uh, in terms of production design, they get Peter Lamont back. Uh, see the L episode for Peter Lamont. Uh, composed by Michael Kamen, who we've just done two episodes ago. So again, see that, and we will talk with the mu- about the music uh, later on. And again, these people I'm going to mention, when we get to them, we'll cover them in greater detail. But there's a lot, lot to get through. So stunt coordinator was Paul Weston on this one. And the director of photography was Alec Mills, who I don't think I've heard that name before uh, today. And it was edited by John Grover. Uh, so John Glenn's got, it, got it, a team together. Working with Peter Lamont, you work with people that you, you're familiar with, how they work and how they operate. And I think that's what John Glenn did throughout his tenure. Very much kept it in the family. Yeah, I was listening to your For Your Eyes Only episode recently and, and, and John Glenn has sort of put that team together there. And I think that a lot of those teams are still here by this point. They're still, you know, I think the cinematographer, the cinematographer is different. I think that name I hadn't heard for before either. But mm-hmm. speaking of returning cast, now... You guys did your fantastic Dalton Double Bill episode a while ago. So he's back, his second showing, unfortunately for some. But I have a couple of notes about Dalton when it comes to License to Kill specifically. It was quite hard to find quotes about this. So I actually went back and watched a lot of the press he did around the time, interviews with American TV shows and sort of pulled a few quotes from that I found quite interesting because he was very much about the word violence and stunts and danger he keeps repeating those words and i think that's something he was trying to drive and then if you look at the trailers they're trying to get that across as well but i'll just read you a couple that i've got i think bond now in this film certainly is right back in the world of james bond it is dangerous it is tough and it's a lot more violent this movie we do with what we do with those trucks and what we do with that plane is fantastic it's finding new places and new ways to do stunts other than that i've got a couple of funny anecdotes about it Um, Dalton was uh, very homesick allegedly whilst filming this Uh, he really wanted uh, to go home and have a pint of bitter I can't uh, (laughs) I can't reconcile that one because I really don't like beer at all so I don't know how he feels that way but uh, gents do you you often pine for a pint of bitter? Never a bitter (laughs) (laughs) There's lovely beers in Mexico for sure Timothy I'm more of an Appletini guy myself but uh, we'll leave that there (laughs) <laughs> um, and just one quick stunt about uh, a, a note about the stunts when Dalton is involved. Now, um, when Bond is being lowered from the helicopter onto the plane in the opening of the film, there was a stunt man on set doing it. We might talk a little bit more about this later, but there was a stunt man originally doing that, and then Dalton said, "I can make it look better," and actually asked to do that stunt himself. So you mostly see Dalton being lowered onto that plane because he requested it. It could have just been a stuntman. And you can tell from these quotes I found, Dalton is very serious about it, looking like Bond is in these stunts. And he throws himself a lot around in this film. So credit to the man. Also returning in perhaps the strangest turn this film makes is Felix Leiter, played by David Hedison. Now that... I. When I watched this film a couple of years, maybe five years ago for the first time, I was blown away that the guy from Live and Let Die had come back. I know it's, it's a thing now in the Craig films. This is this is this is fine. But what do you guys think about the return of Lighter in in an eighties film? It works for me. It really works for me. I like I love David Hedison's uh, Felix Lighter. He's, he's he's much better in this one than in Live and Let Die. I think he's a bit more of a comic character in Live and Let Die. But I like it. I think it really works. I, I'm a fan. 
Yeah, I, I'm actually more confused when I go back to live and let die. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like, oh, what was he doing there? Playing such a different sort of character. But yeah, I, I really like his character. I like the opening scene. I think it, it adds it works to the well. sense of him being old friends with Bond as well, right? If you bring some a, a, yeah. a Felix Leiter you're familiar with, then you buy into that relationship. Um, I think. Do Do you think? And it's just as a question about Felix Leiter. Do you think that audiences in the when they went to go see License to Kill in 89, they were meant to make that connection back to Live and Let Die. I don't know if people were looking for continuity necessarily, so I wonder what they were trying, what reaction they were trying to get. Yeah, I guess that idea of, 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 of cont- continuity throughout the series is, is something I don't think that Cubby Broccoli was that bothered with. And, and from what I understand, David Hedison ended up in this because I think he bumped into Cubby in a restaurant and he said, we need a Felix Leiter, do you want to come back? And that's how that's how it kind of worked. Um, I guess it was just sort of serendipitous that it ended up being one that we'd seen before. But I'm just trying to think how many other Felix Lighters had come between Live and Let Die and this one. But yeah, they could have gone back to any Felix Lighter, really. Well, I mean, you certainly stole my story there, Tom, about meeting him in a restaurant. So I'll I'll leave that there. But I I did (laughs) have one quote um, (laughs) from David Hedison about coming back to play uh, Felix Lighter. I feel as though I've picked up where I left off. They are complete opposites. Roger never takes anything seriously. I think that's why he is so funny. Timothy is very earnest. He takes his work very seriously, cares about the scene and works very well with his fellow actor, bending over backwards to help them. A very serious man, our Dalton. Yes. So we actually had a Timothy, we, had, we actually had a Felix Leiter in Living Daylights. I don't know how I'd forgotten this. Played by John Terry, probably because it's not very memorable. And also uh, we'd had Bernie Casey in Never Say Never Again. So we'd had two other Felix Leiters by between the David Hedison ones. But um, so I guess it kind of made sense. He was the most memorable Felix Leiter of recent years, perhaps. Well, it makes sense it, because the opening scene, it's uh, he's going to Bond's going mm. to his wedding. So if you've got someone where there is a bit of history and you can try and put that on screen without doing any sort of bluster, you know, you can just do it there and try and make it natural and organic. That's what they've gone for, probably, you know, maybe. One one funny bit of continuity when it comes to Leiter. Um, the writer of the Bond books at the time, John Gardner, uh, was tasked with doing a novelization of this film because it was a completely new story, didn't have its own Fleming book. But because in the books, by this point, Leiter had a fake arm, they had to then have the fake arm on Leiter as he gets his leg taken off. So when you get to the character who's on the bed, who's been mangled by the shark, he now has no arm and no leg. <laughs> right. <laughs> Leiter's not doing too well in the books. No. Um, but also returning is Robert Brown as M. Uh, you haven't had your M episode just yet. Oh, it's so coming up. It's coming up. So I will give you a little bit, but not too much about Robert Brown. This is his fourth time... He doesn't make much of an appearance in the film, but it's his fourth time playing against his second Bond. But, you know, a very diminished role. You get one scene with Money Penny and then the the big scene where, you know, Timothy Dalton hands in his license to kill and uh, at the Ernest Hemingway house, which I quite like. And, yeah, I didn't have much to say about him, nor do I have much to say about Money Penny, who I'll get to in a second. But Q, Desmond Llewellyn, is his 14th time in the role. And a rare case of Q in the field. I'm always a fan of Q in the field. I think we had it in Thunderball. That's all I can really remember at this point. I know we see him again in Tomorrow Never Dies out in Germany. Is there any other entries I'm missing where he's out in the field? You only live twice. He has little Nelly in the in the case, I think. 
But th- but this one's really different. He really gets his teeth into this, doesn't he? He gets a lot to work with. And it, because it's shot in Mexico, it's one of the few times Desmond Llewellyn actually travelled abroad to do his stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. Good Apparently he was paid the most he's ever been paid to play the role. <laughs> Probably because he has more than like two lines. So I, that's uh, always a good yeah. thing. And basically Desmond Llewellyn on Timothy Dalton did, uh, on this film says, now with Timothy, we've got a real character. He's a thinking Bond. This is the first time we've ever seen an unshaven Bond, which he would be when he's been in a fight. He's so old in this film, and it, he, those quotes make him sound like a real old man, doesn't he? It, it's interesting, because <laughs> he sounds a bit curmudgeonly, but I, I also get that he liked working with Dalton, like he took it seriously. But I can see Llewellyn and Roger Moore just laughing on the set and just hanging out. I don't think he hung out with Timothy Dalton. No, I mean, he would have been... Going to bed too early, I think, for Timothy Dalton. Probably. Uh, and lastly, in terms <laughs> of returning cast, the second appearance of Carolyn Bliss as Money Penny in all but one scene. What a shocking entry. Now, she gets a bit more time in The Living Daylights, which you guys will get to shortly. But Caroline Bliss, you know, what's your take, guys? Would you want more in this film? I've, uh, I think I've previously spoken on one of our episodes about my dislike of her portrayal of the character just very very wooden you know she, she's got like minimal lines but i just no i'm not I'm not a fan especially off the back of lois maxwell i mean come on like where do you go from that like you either just completely reinvent the character which i think samantha bond does mm-hmm. but she's just kind yeah. of standing in the shadow and i think that's uh, i think that's what yeah. it, it works against her unfortunately um yeah. carolyn bliss now has gone on to become a spiritual healer I can only assume that is to get over the rough hand she had as Money Penny. <laughs> um, but we have some new cast joining us. Yes, let's talk about the Bond girls first, uh, or Bond women, the leading ladies, as Timothy Dalton would say. We've got Carrie Lowell, Carrie Lowell as Pam Bouvier. We did an episode with Pam Bouvier, or on Pam Bouvier, a little while ago, so you can refer back to that one. But just to say that uh, she auditioned reading a scene from A View to a Kill, so I thought that was quite interesting. It was her fifth film role at the time, and I think she was quite pleased that the character of Pam Bouvier was a bit more confident and competitive with Bond. So she felt it was different to the other Bond girls, which we we always hear a lot. But she said that she exercised very hard to get into shape for the film. And just a little snippet of information from the uh, audio commentary on Licence to Kill. John Glenn says that every male cast and crew member fell in love with Carrie, with her saying that she was just so gorgeous. Which sounds a bit creepy, if you ask me. And uh, Robert Darvey, he praised her spiritualism. One other person, uh, there's not much information about that, about who auditioned, but John Glenn does say that he auditioned Sharon Stone at the time to play Pam Bouvier, and he was very impressed with her, but not impressed with her enough with her to give her the role. But he said that you could tell at the time that she was a star in waiting, so that was quite interesting. Do we know what scene from A View to a Kill? Uh, yeah, it was one of Stacey Sutton's scenes. Uh, I'm not sure which one, but yeah, quite interesting. They were using yeah. that as the uh, the template. I can shed some light on this one. It's actually on. the uh, ah. it's actually the scene where Stacey Sutton is explaining Max Zorin's geological plans um, to Bond, I believe, in the scene. And the only reason that Carrie Lowell nailed it is because her father was a geologist, so she was familiar with the language. Ah, wow. Yeah, good detail there, yeah. 
I think she's terrific in this. I don't know about you two guys. I think the more I see this film, the more I think she's one of my favourite of the of the Bond girls, to be honest. Yeah, she's absolutely one of my favourites. She's she's yeah. on my list of people where I'd love to have on the show at some point. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah, she um, um, she walked where so that Paloma could run, I think. Um, she was very much uh, in the same sort of uh, vein in that, you know, cocktail dress with the gun and, and that sort of stuff. So, um yeah, big fan. The other Bond girl to talk about is uh, Lupe Lamora, played by Talisa Soto. The role of Lupe was originally offered to an actor called Maria Conchita Alonso, who'd recently starred in The Running Man. And she accepted the role, but uh, changed her mind at the last minute. And she had also had a previous um, a brush with Bond because uh, she nearly played Fatima Blush in Never Say Never Again. So um, mm. there you go. A little detour there. But Talisa Soto... She plays Sanchez's girlfriend. Uh, she was born in New York uh, to Puerto Rican parents and she was raised in Massachusetts. She started off modelling when she was 15 and that became a full-time thing for her. She became a basically a very in-demand model um, after she was picked out by a photographer called Bruce Weber. And then she made a film debut in a low-budget film called The Spike of Spike of Bensonhurst. And then she also appeared in a David Lynch short film called Cowboy Meets Frenchman, which you can watch online if you wanted to... Uh, explore some of uh, Talisa Soto's back catalogue but her casting process was much lengthier than Carrie Lowell's Carrie Lowell's was basically she auditioned and then a few days later she'd got the part but for Talisa she tested quite a lot of times and one of her tests she actually did a screen test opposite Robert Darvey playing 007 which apparently did for a lot of the auditions to prepare for the role she took lessons in blackjack dealing um, and something interesting I learned as well from uh, in earlier drafts of the scripts, um, Lupe Lamora was actually one of the villains, but that got changed during the rewrites to become more of a sympathetic character in the in the final film. So we've got the Bond girls. Now we need a villain. Ah, uh, yes, and a fantastic villain. One of my favourites again in in the category. Robert Darvey playing Frank Sanchez. Okay, so Robert Darvey is is an American actor. Um, he's been in the Goonies. Die Hard, Predator 2, and, and like over 100 films. And he plays Frank Sanchez, and he was spotted by Cubby Broccoli and Richard Maybaum. They were watching a, a TV movie called Terrorist on Trial, the US versus Salim Ajami. And so they saw Robert Darvey, and, and they decided to get him in because they were so impressed. The incredible thing about Robert Darvey is the attention to detail he's gone in for this role of Frank Sanchez. He's researched South American drug drug lords in order to play one. He had his script translated into Spanish and then back into English so he could get the the pacing and the tone of of the language right, how how he would speak. He learned uh, scuba diving, especially for it, for the role. Um, he's he's really done his research. None, none of that was asked for of him by the uh, the crew. He just decided to do it, and I think it's all the better for it because he he puts in such a fantastic performance. What what do you guys think? Yeah, I agree. I think he's really menacing in this film, nuanced mm. as well, like not just one one note. I, yeah, I, I've always rated him as a villain, but I I sometimes don't know if he works for me as like a Bond villain. And I know it's a weird sentence, but I just think when I come to Bond, I want. Blofelds and these outrageous villains and he is the closest I think we maybe ever get there's maybe some Daniel Craig villains uh, close there that to to really frightening people 
that are just genuinely serious and violent. That's that word again. And you wouldn't want to meet them down a dark alleyway. So I think he's successful in creating that character, but maybe it's not what I'd look for in a Bond villain. That's fair. Mm. Yeah. It was his idea as well to um, to come up with the valuing loyalty more than money. That was his thing, which is early on in the script, and it very much is the might be the reason you don't you know see him as such a good Bond villain because Blofeld is the opposite. He's, he wants to take over the world. He you know whereas Darby, his priorities are in a mm. different place. Um, Sanchez. So we have uh, Anthony Zerb as Milton Crest, who we've just covered. So see the k episode for that i'm just going to yeah. jump in because i wanted to i was going to give you guys a chance because i listened to your mention of anthony zerbe on the milton crest the k episode you did and there was a bit of trivia that i wanted to hear and i didn't hear it and i was wondering if you had it now but you didn't so here we go this is where no. my background in star trek comes in play <laughs> go on now you mentioned that he was in star trek insurrection what you didn't mention is how he's killed so famously, uh, Milton Crest is dispatched in this film by uh, putting in a pressure tank and then he's basically exploded. His face is exploded, certainly. But in Star Trek Insurrection, he's killed by his face being pulled apart. Oh, interesting. Serbe <laughs> mm. so, has the, uh, corner, the market corners when it comes to face exploding acting. So yeah, he, he, uh, Milton Crest is Sanchez's henchman who uh, he, he runs the marine research for Wavecrest. Benicio del Toro as Dario, we did cover him in a D yeah. episode. In you know, he, he's looking very young, very, uh, very threatening. Uh, you know, quite a good henchman actually. Just it's that evil laugh and the evil smile that he does. Um, he's twenty-one at the time, wow. so it's one of his earlier roles. He he gets to a pretty gruesome death uh, as well. <laughs> quite a few gruesome deaths in this film it's telling that he's a bit um, of a heartthrob at the time i was watching this with my partner and she literally walked through the room sees tell del toro on the film and goes oh he's hot <laughs> just out of nowhere <laughs> so i captivating uh visual performance absolutely everett mcgill as ed killifer he's the double agent for the dea who um ends up taking the bribe of uh, two is it two million dollars from Sanchez, so that Sanchez can be freed from custody. Uh, Everett McGill was uh, is an American actor. He's been in Dune, Under Siege two, um, and also uh, uh, in Twin Peaks. Yeah, that's where I know Ed, him Ed from. Hurley. Yeah. yeah, and then and then he um, he returned. He retired from acting in nineteen ninety nine actually, and then came back for the revival of Twin Peaks. Um, I assume he's retired once more. Um, but that's yeah, that's Ed Killifer. So there's. Even more villains in this film. In fact, there's a <laughs> so many there's villains. A, there's a truckload. There's a I don't know a, a rather large exploding truckload of villains in this film. But uh, the first one we have Truman Lodge. Now he is uh, Sanchez's you know, bank man, money man. He's meant to have been a you know, someone who was in Wall Street who is a you know did some insider trading and ran away to this island of Isthmus. But um, I was doing some looks into his past. Yeah, he's Anthony Stark would go on to you know star in a couple of other films. Nowhere to Run with Van Damme, an Exodus spoof uh, with Leslie Nielsen called Repossessed. So yeah, he, he moved on from this film. Uh, a couple of quotes just about uh, what he did, and also he did a lot of research for this role. He actually went and spent some time 
with people in the financial community and like and people on the stock exchange like he really threw himself into the research it's not on the screen that much but i appreciate that <laughs> uh he said uh, about being in the role it's sort of a male fantasy to be in a bond film i think it's especially fun to be one of the bad guys and then we've got sort of a double act of perez and braun so perez is paid by alejandro braco um uh, he's the chap who you'll remember has the worst aim with a rocket launcher in the world <laughs> pretty big target and he manages to just about sneak it underneath that, that wheel that's off the ground by half a meter uh he hails from uh mexico his family comes from mexico they're actually a family of actors and uh, he, originally he was going to pursue a life as a monk but he found out he couldn't act and be a monk at the same time so he chose acting mm. maybe the monks would have taught him how to use a rocket launcher i don't know <laughs> and then the other half of Perez and Braun, uh, Braun played by Guy de Saint-Cyr, I believe that's how it's pronounced, or Sire. Again, The License to Kill was his first international film, but mainly he was just starring in roles in Mexico around the time. His quote about working on Bond is, it gives me the opportunity to develop the dreams in my life, which are to combine my acting with a message to the people. Anything that helps the world to change in a positive way. Moving on, we have Heller. Those people who don't know who Heller is, he's the military chap that sort of follows Sanchez around in the film. He's in a few scenes, uh, played by Don Stroud. He's, uh, he's basically spent a lot of time being sort of a stuntman in Hollywood before t- turning into acting. He originally was uh, Troy Donahue's stuntman in Hawaii Eye, which is a Hawaii detective story. He was brought in because he could surf, whereas Troy Donahue could not on working on james bond he said it's not a big part but it's turning into something real nice i either stand beside tim or roberts so i always get in the shot fair play (laughs) but uh, (laughs) the highlight of my list of villains is mr joe butcher wayne newton ah yes uh, who i have written down as the uh the mr cone himself the king of the cones of dunshire uh I I I I love this guy. I have a personal love for Las Vegas. So he's a Las Vegas lounge act, the actor himself. And he'd been wanting to be in Bond for years. He's been petitioning to to Broccoli, um, to cover Broccoli for years to be in as like a small part. So he's finally got his wish. Apparently he had such an entourage that he turned up to filming his small scenes in License to Kill uh with a private jet, uh, along with his fiance, his pilot, and a personal hairstylist. Now his hair's on point, so the hairstylist paid off. He also asked on the back of working on this film to perform at what they call the Royal Command Performance, which is now known as the Royal Variety Performance, in front of Her Majesty the Queen. I'm not sure I want to see that performance. Wow, I uh, never that part of the film never really makes any sense to me whatsoever, no, Joe Butcher. But, um, it's confusing. Yeah, I, I, it doesn't matter how many times I watch it. I'm like, what? Why? What? <laughs> but I like it. I don't know. It adds some weird like, weirdness to the to the dark energy. Yeah, it's got of the that film. sort of campy like Roger Moore side of things when they get to the uh, Atomi Institute. Oh, and the only only other claim to fame the chap has is the song Danka Shane, who you might know from the Ferris Bueller soundtrack, was actually him. Wow, <laughs> that's a good fact. I wish I didn't know that. Um, but uh, <laughs> but let's uh, let's move on swiftly to the Allies.
Well, uh, aside from um, we've got Felix Leiter in the film and obviously the usual MI6 people, there are you actually got a couple of friends in in this film. Bond has um, uh, chiefly uh, Sharky. Um, now Sharky is uh, the um, he stands at six foot six and he's played by the actor Frank McRae. He was an NFL uh, player turned actor, um, and he'd actually um, after leaving the NFL. Uh, studied at the Lee Strasberg Institute learning about the method so um, took his stuff very seriously he his debut film was in John Millius's Dillinger in 1973 and then he, he appeared in a lot of different action films often working with Sylvester Stallone actually uh, but he also appeared in uh, Last Action Hero Red Dawn and uh, Rocky 2 and but he was also very well used in comedy films National Lampoon's Vacation 1941 Loaded Weapon and then my personal favourite, Batteries Not Included, which is uh, one of my childhood favourites. Um, but Sharky leaves a big impression in this film and obviously uh, gets killed, but Bond gets his revenge um, in a nice fashion. But sadly, Frank McRae died uh, in 2021. Um, so, yeah, sad loss there. We've also got Hawkins, played by Grandel Bush. He's one of the cops that um, helped Bond at the start. He's also a uh, classically trained actor, Shakespearean trained, and had appeared in Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, um, Brewster's Millions, and he was also in Demolition Man. But my favourite bit of trivia is he also played Balrog in the Street Fighter movie. A couple of other minor ones to mention as well. You've got Priscilla Barnes as Della, um, Felix's um, uh, fiance slash wife. Uh, she ha was best known at the time for appearing in the ABC comedy Three's Company. And then, this is not an ally, but um, just a bit of a miscellaneous character, but uh, President Hector Lopez was paid by Pedro Armendariz Jr., the son of Pedro Armendariz, who had played Karimbe in From Russia With Love. And uh, Pedro Armendariz Jr.'s son also worked on the film. So three generations of his family had worked um, on Bond. His son worked as a third assistant on the film. So there I you do go. have a, a Della question for you all that's burning it's in i need to know now are either of you married i am okay how often does your partner kiss other people frequently <laughs> because they've just got <laughs> married and she is lip smacking with bond instantaneously now i would also lip smack with timothy dalton but i mean that's got to hurt felix a little bit that's just very close aren't they i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of tension there though, isn't there? It's not just close. There's, it feels there's, like there's something. It's either history or yeah. yeah, there's something. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's dive into production. <laughs> I feel like we're going to be on one of the longest episodes ever if we don't. So we're going to Churubusco Studios in Mexico now. Um, unfortunately, uh, John Glenn said that the the studios were dilapidated. And that everything was smaller than we'd been used to. Not all the stages were actually available to us. So this is even more pressures on them. So remember, the, the budget's low. They're not where they usually are. The, and, and the studios they have managed to get are nowhere near up to the standard that they've previously had. But on the 18th of July, 1988, the crew moved to move into Churubusco. And they'd taken over seven of the eight sound stages and shooting began. The, some of the first scenes were the scenes in Felix Leiter's house and then the bar scenes, the Bond hotel scenes. So Peter Lamont's sets that were built at Churubusco, he, he had a little book um, and he would sketch all the ideas for his sets 
and then he would give them to the, the uh, art department. They would draw them up. And for this film, that led to 350 set drawings, which is an incredible amount. Just for reference on the previous film, it was it was there was 100, you know, fewer. Uh, wow. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. And the, the ones that he, you know, the prominent ones, uh, Milton Crest Warehouse, which, uh, you know, it's, it's a very realistic looking set. It's not a Ken Adam fantastical sweeping massive volcano lair. It's very sort of, you know, you can believe it exists. And I think it, it, that really fits with the tone of the film, to be fair. I think that's credit to Peter Lamont. He's, he's not just doing it for the sake of it. He's, He's making sure it fits in with the rest of the film. So in terms of these sets, he was restricted because these stages, they're only 12.5 metres high. So, you know, there would be no building a volcano lair anyway because that's, that's 41 feet. And usually you have to build the, the bottom as well you, because you need to go underneath and it's the scaffolding. So, yeah, it's, a, it's very restrictive. Um, he said, I can only build within the space available. So it is a challenge. I have to compromise all the way but haven't compromised the finish and the quality of the actual sets. He says, in the License to Kill, the Wavecrest, for instance, is a real oceanographic sea ship uh, equipped with luxury suite. Years ago, we would have gone into designing a luxury yacht, but now Crest has a certain cover which dictates what the ship must look like. Um, so rather than rely on these sets, despite having 350 <laughs> drawings of, of sets he wants to design, he actually went out and... You know, a lot of it was shot on location. So the barrel head bar fight, the exterior was at the Harbour Light Raw Bar, and that's in uh, Key West. But the interior, he said, I try to create each film individually. Uh, it's easy to fall into the trap that everything is similar. Licence to Kill, the drug culture of Central America has at times almost seed seed quality particularly evident in the fight scene at Barrowhead Bar, but the overall effect has a more contemporary flavour. So he's very much done that on purpose, the very the vibe of it. Um, and then the fight afterwards when they are on the boat having an argument, uh, Bond and Bouvier, that's actually on the soundstage. So they're not actually on the boat. That was an old-fashioned film technique. Not that you'd noticed. I think it's a, it's a pretty good scene. I think that um, was a reshoot, actually, that one, because they'd shot it on a boat and it didn't look very good. And so they oh, redid, so they it, redid the it stage. Yeah. Well, it, it looks great at, on the soundstage. Yeah. Um, then they moved to Key West in August, which is in yeah. Florida. Just before we moved to Key West, I, I forgot to put it on the running order, but Milton Crest's head exploding. Did you guys read around this and how they did it? No. So no. They, they took a, a mould of Anthony Zerber's head um, and then they built a, a fiberglass model of his head and then a latex model uh, mask that then laid over that and then they just pumped it up and then obviously then somehow made the red blood explode out of it. Um, I think it was actually cut from the, the film initially, but um, I, it looks really realistic when it happens. Well, not really realistic, but um, the bit where it explodes, it's really like um, gruesome, I guess. Yeah, certainly quite jarring for a Bond film if this is... You say if you watched Moonraker before and you jump straight to a license to kill, you you, you wouldn't know where you were. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, we mentioned Key West just before. So Key West, the shooting started in August. It lasted twenty days. Those who don't know Key West, it's basically uh, the last of a bunch of coral islands just off the coast of Florida. Some other notable films that were shot there include Office Space, 
a great comedy, and A Murder of Crows from 1998. They had a load of issues shooting in Key West, including uh, intermittent power cuts, water failures, and heavy rain delays. Uh, Nick, uh, basically, it led to the island being nicknamed Key Wet. So uh, that, that makes sense. Um, but some of the notable things that were shot in Key West include the aforementioned Barrelhead Bar exterior. Uh, we also have the Ernest Hemingway Museum, which is the, the house where Bond resigns. And that's why he says the line, I guess this is a farewell to arms, which is a nod to Ernest Hemingway's book, a farewell to arms uh the seven mile bridge basically where sanchez is sprung uh, that's they filmed that there you've also got the key west international airport where sanchez's escape is uh filmed isthmus harbor was filmed at the u.s coast guards base uh the wave crest scenes that was moored off of key west so the things that were actually on the boat exterior was all filmed around there and the wedding. Now, the wedding itself, quite interesting where they shot it. It's basically an estate owned by uh, an interior designer who basically spent a ton of money making it look really gorgeous and planting lots of foreign plants there, hoping to have people come and stay there, and they didn't for a very long time. And then License to Kill came along, and now people go and stay there, which is nice. But um, <laughs> interestingly, they put out a massive castings call for a ton of extras to be you know, background at the wedding. And uh, what they didn't think about until quite close to shooting was the fact that everyone in Key West tends to wear shorts and t-shirt because it's balmy and they weren't going to rock <laughs> up in suits so they had to go on a shopping spree the uh, the costume designer Jody Tillen basically had to go on a shopping spree around New York with Barbara Broccoli buying every single fancy dress and suit they could find and take it over to Key West with them to uh, give it the glam and the glitz it needed um, now there are a couple of strange cameos in the background of the scene that people can keep an eye out for. There's a chap called uh, Doug Redenius, I believe that's how it's pronounced. He is a postman from Chicago, Illinois, who owns the largest collection of Bond memorabilia at the time. We've also got Sandy Centel, who was a gym teacher from Atlanta, who won a MTV VH1 competition to appear in the film. Uh, she's a bystander wearing a VH1 t-shirt in the background. And still photographer on the film, Keith Hampshire, was the wedding photographer. Jumped in at the very last minute because they realized they didn't have one. Any sort of favorite scenes you guys have from Key West? Well, the major sequence is obviously the pre-title sequence, um, which we have uh, taking place in, in Key West. And it's got the massive stunt at the start, which we've already sort of briefly referenced. But yeah, basically Bond and Felix give chase to track down Sanchez and they um, go uh, basically tra track his pla him down to a plane in the sky and they and, and then they capture his plane using a helicopter. And this stunt, I think, heavily, heavily referenced in The Dark Knight Rises when they capture when Bane is captured or Bane uh, gets um, uh, sprung from his uh, from from prison. Um, but the guy who devised this stunt was a stunt coordinator called Corky Fornoff. Uh, it took him three weeks uh, devising the routine. And then a stunt person called Jake Lombard doubled for Dalton. So this was filmed during the um, uh, while they're in Key West. But it took the first unit, second unit and an aerial unit all working side by side to, to complete it. 
John Richardson, the special effects man, he built a rig that would tip Sanchez's plane from horizontal to vertical, but it was shot on the ground to make it look like it was in the air. And they also had a special camera rig, which made it look like it was sort of floating in the air with them. So that's why it looks like it's it's high up, but it's not really. And like you said, Dalton did one of the stunts where he was lowered from the helicopter onto the plane to make it look real. Apparently, it, there was so much interest in how the stunt was being done. Local members of the CIA turned up to watch the stunt being filmed. And um, they obviously then you've got the stunt cook culminating in Bond and Felix parachuting down to the wedding itself. And this jump was performed only once by BJ Worth, who had done A View to a Kill as well. And another parachutist, which I couldn't find the name of. But they did it and they hit the target on the first attempt. Um, but apparently it was very unnerving because they had no alternative landing spots to do it. Um Unfortunately, David Hedison found himself getting an injury on shooting his section of the landing because they were rigged up to a device, him and Timothy. And he said, once a button was pushed, we'd be literally shot to the ground. And I was first. Bam, I fell to the ground and badly hurt my knees. They stopped everything, cut confusion, and I hobbled around for days. Luckily, luckily Timothy was to go second. And that opening sequence, I think, is terrific. It really is. It opens the film with a bang. So, yeah, it really speaks a lot about John Glenn's uh, stunt background and second unit background that they really, really mm. nailed that. It's got a lot, a lot of peril to it. So then production moved back to Mexico City. And during this time, Cubby Broccoli became ill. And that was down to the, the high altitude. And also there was poor air quality and pollution. And... So Barbara had to take him home and this was actually the first time during you know, the filming of the Bond franchise that he wasn't present for the filming and unfortunately he would never return. So yeah, that's quite quite sad. So Cubby's not, not around anymore, but they're, they're filming at the casino scenes. That was actually shot at a social club because there aren't any casinos in Mexico because gambling's illegal, so they couldn't use an actual casino. The bank, the Banco de Isthmus, that's at the main post office building in Mexico City. So as you can see, you know, they're using like for like pretty much as best they can. Um, keeping keeping those costs down. So they basically used the real bank, real interior, used it at the weekend when the bank was closed and managed to, to, to do it like that. Um, Bonds Hotel, the interior, that's at the Grand Hotel in Mexico which it actually features in the opening sequence of Spectre as well. Oh, wow. And then the theatre as well is used for the exterior shots of Sanchez's casino headquarters. Um, the theatre is it's located on a quite a busy street. They built, rebuilt the facade in the studios for the close-ups um, so that when Bond climbs into the building and attaches the uh, the toothpaste that yeah that's uh, that's on a set and then bond's hotel exterior that's at the biblioteca in mexico i mean some of those interiors are are terrific i know john glenn was very uh, spoke very highly of the technicians at chirabusco in terms of them doing the set decorating inside but yeah like some of the sets you wouldn't know weren't real i think it's mm. they do a terrific job they used Absolutely, the main post yeah. office for a couple of deleted scenes as well. Um, and it, it's stunning. I'd love to see actually that in person. It looks great. Mm. But uh, bless your hearts, it's my time to talk about the Otomi building, which uh, stands in for Joe Butcher's Institute, basically. Now, they were having no luck finding 
something for this. They, they were they they looked all around. They had a couple of places they were looking at. There was a university locally they'd approached to stand in for this. They said no. A lot of other possibilities fell through as well. And then they heard about this mysterious place, not you know nowhere near anything. It was just sort of a way. And it turns out that they've this ceremonial site was built for the Otomi people. They're an indigenous people of Mexico uh, near Toluca. Um, basically by a, a local politician, I believe it was, or a leader as some sort of gesture, but it, it was never used and it just sort of sat there, which is strange because it's gorgeous. Um, sort of got that modernist feel to it, uh, but like it evokes kind of the indigenous, like it's got like statues and things that are all built in. It's, it has a natural feel. It's built into the, the, the setting. It looks like it's meant to be there. Um, and I always... I mean, I didn't have much in terms of notes of it because it's mostly the exterior they use this for. The interior shots are all on sets. But I just feel it feels like a Peter Lamont set, like an outside thing, but it's actually in real life. The the long shots of that place are incredible. Yeah. It looks mm. absolutely sensational. And it's one of those things that where the reality is better than the fiction, I think. When, when they can do these things, find real places, then it, it just looks so much better, I think. Well, another real-life location that stood in for um, uh, set was, was the Villa Arabesque in Acapulco, and this was Sanchez's house. And I think, again, when you look at Joe Butcher's Institute, this is another fantastic real-life location that really brings the film to life. So this villa was built in 1978. It took four years to build for a man called the Baron Enrico de Portanova, and the Baron and Baroness were personal friends of Cubby Broccoli's. And the house itself, Villa Arabesque, was said to be worth $32 million in 1989, which was the budget of the film. Uh, so mm. quite, a, quite an amazing place. This place um, had a helicopter pad on the roof and the crew were asked to wear soft-soled shoes while they were working there because it was a real-life house and no one was allowed to smoke there either. And to use the location, Cubby paid a donation to a charity uh, that the owners chose. So they didn't really pay to do it. It's another cost-cutting exercise there. John Glenn, talking about the house, was very... Uh, he, he had a lot of praise for the housekeeping that was there. He said while they were filming, you would like put down like a shirt on the side, like a character had been wearing. And half an hour later, it, re it would return, washed, dried and pressed. Um, so he said that the, the staff were very attentive there. Um, and... A lot of the stuff that ends up in the film just came from when they arrived there. They thought, that looks really cool. I'll put it in the film, including the elevator, which took people down to the beach. So the only scene that wasn't shot on location at um, Arabesque was James Bond's bedroom. They had to build it on a soundstage because the guest bedrooms that were there had a lot of artwork in that the owners didn't want on, on camera and didn't want them damaged. Um, and so it also played host to the very final scene where Bond jumps off the pool into the balcony. And that was shot on the penultimate day that they were there on the location. And that was a last minute idea of John Glenn's um, to do. And Paul Weston, uh, he doubled for Bond in this scene and they had to put cushions in the pool for when he jumped in because it was only five feet deep. And you've seen it in the film. That is a big leap that he makes into just five feet of water. I wouldn't do it. Mm. No, no. <laughs> definitely not. That's, that is incredible that that's not a set, you know. Yeah. Ken Adam would come up with that sort of stuff. Definitely. Apparently one, one, amazing. one of the downsides is that because it was all painted white, it was very hard to light during the day. Uh, but at night time, it just looked mm. spectacular on yeah. camera. Go there for the giant fish statues myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and apparently just one last thing to say about it apparently it's it's kind of fallen into disrepair now apparently it's in a real sorry oh. state um the villa arabesque so uh, it's yeah. quite a sad sad thing to learn but um yeah um so for the underwater se- scenes in the film crew actually went a separate crew went there to isla majuris it's near cancun and it's renowned for you know clear waters. It's great for snorkeling, scuba diving. So the production team decided to go with that. But the location manager on License to Kill was Tony Broccoli. Um, yes, he's related. But he said, <laughs> We were there for three months filming with sharks, mini submarines. Timothy nor any of the other actors were there. We used stuntmen and doubles. Any underwater scenes involving Timothy were filmed in a water tank at the studio in Mexico City. So yep, that's uh, the the manta ray. That is not Timothy Dalton until you until you see the close up. Then it will be. So yeah, then there's quite quite a bit. And, and do you know what? I'm I'm no fan of underwater scenes, right? But I can tolerate these ones because it's not it's not too much. Yeah, and talking about the modern films ripping that off. That sequence where they're diving underwater to rescue Sanchez from the the, the yeah. police van. That was done again in Mission Impossible, the last one, I think. Yeah, in Fallout. Is that the last yes. one? Yeah. Where they're rescuing the guy, Sean Harris character. That was totally ripped off from that, right? Yeah, a few other films have, that we've tackled on Spy Hards have actually done something similar, but that's the most recent one with the biggest budget, certainly. Right. But like, also, you could also argue that Blade Runner 2049 has a scene where they, the guy's drowning. I think Harrison Ford's character is drowning in the car as well and gets saved at the last minute. They, it's something they use a lot. That's true. That's true. But, you know, filming then leads on to the climax of the film, the big old tanker chase. Now, I have a ton of statistics about it. I'll boil it down. But then a couple of weird facts about it as well. So it's filmed at the Rumorosa Pass just outside of a town called uh, Mexicali, which is a Mexican border town. Uh, The sequence took seven weeks to film. They filmed 220 storyboard shots and there were 120 by 400 foot rolls of film. So basically 48,000 foot worth of film was used to shoot the scene. That's a lot of film. And uh, probably where most of that budget goes because they were shooting... (laughs) 10 seconds of film per day. You think about that final sequence. It lasts about between 11 to 14 minutes. So that's seven weeks for 14 minutes. That's like a, that's like Ardman level of filming. Did you say 10 seconds a day? Allegedly, according to the, uh, the wow. making of book. Yeah, that's... Um, I mean, seven weeks is a lot of time. And they were doing night shoots well, for some bits and bobs, mostly day shoots. But yeah, crazy, really. That's a lot of film too. But the shooting itself was not only plagued with a bunch of setbacks, but also some mysterious happenings. But the actual setbacks included things like driver had to plow their vehicle into the side of a road, one of the trucks, because there was oncoming vehicles they didn't know about, so they had to write off a truck just doing that. One of the actual drivers, stunt drivers, a French driver named Gilbert Batte, or Batali, the only person who could drive the tanker on two wheels, went missing for 36 hours during shooting, without notifying anyone and didn't take his passport or any money. So uh, they found him eventually. It doesn't actually specify <laughs> where he went. I, I just assume he went drinking. Let's just let's just assume it was that. But he was fine and uh, he did do the scene with the two wheels. And there was also a, a big ton of, a load of felt that was being used for the, the burning road that just went up in smoke overnight, mysteriously, which leads us on to the spooky side of the uh, shooting. Now, 
there was quite a few strange occurrences. One of them was what I mentioned that turning on now. Another was a tanker mysteriously setting itself on fire during the production. And then also one of the prop stinger missiles that actually was a, uh, did have a rocket in it, it did fire a projectile, was shot and flew two and a half miles and struck a nearby telephone worker who was up a telephone pole. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is no word of a lie. This is actually from the making of documentary on the Blu-ray and DVD. I'm taking it had no explosive uh, like no, warhead. No, it <laughs> <laughs> didn't bomb a small part of Mexico. No, it was just a, it was just an actual projectile, but it did uh, it did gain some velocity and uh, did uh, injure, I believe, the chap's leg or hip. One of the two. He wasn't too happy either way, but I'm. I'm, I'm sure they uh, took care of him, as they do with the Bond films. But yeah, I know that's, that's the craziest thing about it, isn't it? A rocket launcher hit a guy on a Bond film. I love that story. But this was building up now. You've got a picture. There was the rocket launcher. There's a thing setting on fire mysteriously. And so they did a little research, and it turns out that there had been a number of accidents along this stretch of road. Okay, deaths, road accidents, near misses and you know close to shooting and one recent thing was there was a bus load of apparently five nuns took a plunge off the side of the road and they all died not nuns nuns what what's going on now uh, i don't know it, it, it get this, it gets spookier it gets even spookier so they were wrapping up um shooting the scenes and they it was they were doing the shot where the two tankers uh, blow up because they because Sanchez is on fire and basically blows everything up. And they, one of the uh, junior production assistants on set he takes a picture with a camera of the explosion, and they had that developed when oh, they were doing on. post. And there was a fly a fiery hand in the photo, <laughs> and it's pointing. Where the nuns went off the cliff. Oh gosh. Now this photo is on the bonus features. You can go and look at this photo, and there's a hand there. They went back through the dailies. They couldn't find this flaming hand, but in that shot there is a flaming hand. And um, no, no word of a lie. It spooked the hell out of everyone on set. Um, yeah, it was some sort of uh, wow. godly uh, intervention. They weren't big fans of uh, massive fireballs on the side of a Mexican border town, but. Um, would you chaps like to know a little bit about how they actually got those tanker scenes put together? Mm, sure. Now, the tankers themselves were provided by the Kenworth Truck Company, who were actually like pitched to do the film. They provided three purpose-made trucks. Uh, they designed them with the stunt coordinator, Remy Julien. Uh, one was capable of being driven by remote control, which was basically the one that you'd have um, Carrie Lowell driving, and there'd be someone basically sat underneath her in the cab driving it for a little hole so she's pretending to drive there's also one that could be driven on the rear wheels there's a bit where they do like a front wheelie i think bond takes off with the front wheelie and then there's also one that could be driven on two wheels they specifically designed three trucks to do those stunts and then they bought five more that they just kitted up and took over they were the ones they thrashed around one of the ones that got driven into the side of the road now we all know this is probably the best stunt sequence in the film but what you may not know is the amount of explosives that were used to provide all of the uh, all of the fire and the flames. Now there were n- allegedly, according to the book, approximately 500 gallons of petrol were used, and 50 sticks of dynamite to produce the tanker explosions. 
and one of the explosions uh, was so big they had to use remote control cameras because they couldn't go anywhere near it and the heat from the explosion could be felt over 185 meters away wow that's a big old distance. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably the same shot they were talking about with the fiery hand with the two trucks colliding because that's that's the really big one in my memory. Yeah, well, I mean, it's two petrol tankers. It, you've got to think it's got to look good, hasn't it? It's got to be big. It's got to be Bond and big. And they, I think they achieve it. I, I think it's uh, they put the money behind it and I, I think it shows on that film. Definitely. I, I was just going to say that it's very... Uh, it, all, it reminds me of Mad Max Fury Road in a way in that sort of... Um, detailed tanker like action sequence i think it's uh it's terrific it's one of the all-time greats i think sanchez would have been great sat on top of one of the trucks playing a flaming guitar i would have liked that <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's what it's missing yeah. isn't it i think eric clapton yes uh, driving into shot Rick Flick his flaming guitar on the side yeah yeah <laughs> um but something prominent happens a couple of months later in november tom yeah, well, pr- principal photography wraps uh, on the 19th of November 1988. That's after 100 days of shooting, and it's actually um, finished on uh, on schedule. So um, it's pretty good, really, uh, exactly on schedule. Um, but there were some disagreements between E.ON and MGM and U- United Artists uh, over the title of the film, which still at this point was licensed revoked. Now... There's a lot of con- rumour and conjecture about why the title was changed. Um, there's never been a definitive answer on, on why it was. Um, but here's some of the reasons that have been given over the years as to why it's been changed. So United Artists apparently said that Americans wouldn't understand what revoked meant. John Glenn has later said that he found that very difficult to believe as being the truth behind it. Another reason that has been uh, cited for the for the for the title change was that um, Americans or test audiences associated the term revoked with driving licenses. And so they felt like it sort of lacked the sort of the, the menace that it needed. The official line at the time, apparently, was that the title license revoked was proving very hard to translate for non-English speaking territories, which kind of makes sense, I guess. But often when their titles are translated, they end up being something completely different anyway. So, again, I don't think that's completely true. There's also um, people who think it was changed to avoid confusion with the 1981 James Bond novel by John Gardner, License Renewed. Um so there's that reason before it. And then Charles Jerry Giroux, someone we've covered on the podcast recently, Eon's head of marketing, he said that it was changed because he thought License to Kill was more Bondian than License Revote. Um, and he said that License Revote was only ever a working title anyway. But there are posters that are, that you can find that have License Revote on it. So talking of um, working titles... I'm going to give you a couple of other working titles for James Bond films, uh, which I've never heard before. But um, apparently The World Is Not Enough, the um, working title for that one was Death Waits For No Man, which I didn't think was great. And then No Time To Die's working title apparently was A Reason To Die. So Mm. there you go. A couple of... uh, couple of other working titles there. So um, when it was changed to from License Revoked to License to Kill, there was a, a slight a discussion over how they would spell license, whether it would be with an S at the end or a C, um, because it, it, in the UK we do it with a C, in the US they do it with an S. And in the end, um, 
when the theatrical trailer and the poster campaigns were released, the UK spelling won out. There are some examples where you can see with the S in it as well. John Glenn, uh, this is a bit of a bit of a joke from John Glenn. He said that the whole plot hinged on Bond losing his license to kill. So it should really have been called No License to Kill. Yeah, so there you I go. absolutely agree. Of course. It's called License <laughs> to Kill and he doesn't have one in, in most of the film. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. So after 100 days in production, uh, they moved into post-production, like you said, at Pinewood. Yeah, so one of the major problems that they had with this was actually a struggle with what rating it would get from the BBFC. So this actually meant the edit had to be changed. So in February 1989 the panel saw John Glenn's first cut of Licence to Kill. And, you know, the the panel were divided. It's obviously quite a violent and brutal portrayal of Bond and, and, you know, the scenes, the deaths. And so half of them wanted to give it an 18 rating and the other half wanted to give it a 15. And, you know, most other Bonds had been, well, I imagine PG up until now. So this is a huge jump, you know, their cause of concerns were the whipping of Lupe, Felix being lowered into a shark tank, Milton Cress's head exploding, uh, Dario being minced. They wanted some audio changes because there was um, a blow to Felix he- Felix's head. There were screams as uh, Felix is lowered into the tank. A lot of punches during the bar fight. Um, you know, so it, it was proving problematic, you know, trying to get that rating. And of course... The thing is, the higher the rating, the fewer people are going to see it. And you, you, you want to keep that as low as you can so you've got a bigger audience that can see it um, for its theatrical release. And so E.ON and the BBFC, they tried to thrash out some sort of a, a agreement. And um, the the death of Sanchez was causing a problem. And they eventually had to remove basically most of most of uh, the the death of Sanchez being on fire. So they'd covered it with reaction shots of Dalton. So we get to May 1989 and uh, the BBFC decide to give it a 15 certificate. And luckily enough, that is, you know, anything higher, it would have would have meant disaster for for the for this film in terms of box office takings. But then later on, as we move forward, you know, tastes and times change. So in 2005, the BBFC re-evaluated it and the cuts that were made to get it down to a 15 were restored for the home release so Felix's death was uh, put in in its entirety underwater shots of legs bobbing about uh, his leg bobbing about the screams all the audio that's that's put back in we see as we we said earlier Crest's head explode You know, we see that in its its entirety. Uh, Dario's death, you see every fibre of his body being shredded to bits. Oh, boy. <laughs> and Sanchez's death, you know, you, you see him in, in fully in flame. But obviously it's, you know, it's a, it's a high rating for a Bond film, you know, 15 at the time. That's um, And to be fair, you know, it probably did deserve it. It's, it's definitely 
a, a step above any of the other bonds in terms of brutality. Yeah, there's a lot of people who, who say that, you know, they really struggled to get in to see it at that mm. age um, because of the age rating. Um, so I think we've all had that experience when we we're, when we're younger than 15, yeah. wanting to see a film slightly too old for us. Yeah, I wish I wish my first version of that was as cool as License to Kill, though. The first one I tried to sneak into was uh, Austin Powers 2. <laughs> <laughs> I was not successful. But um, speaking of a success, I think is the uh, the titles. Now, I'm a big fan of Maurice Binder's work on the titles. It's actually his last one uh, for Bond. So I suppose in terms of returning people, that's Maurice again to do the title sequence. Now, um, it technically has been in every single Bond film, although two of his, I think it's from Russia with Lars and Goldfinger, just has the gun barrel that he designed in the first film that's copied over. But after that, he has worked on every single Bond film to this point i don't feel like this one has a very good sort of narrative sort of stance on what the film is because you've got a lot of you know scantily clad ladies being projected it's got that kind of older bond feel to it there's a lot of like camera stuff involved where the film doesn't really involve cameras there's i mean bond has a camera gun but i don't really get that connection um there's some casino stuff but any any thoughts on the title sequence guys they're they're classy um they're not i don't think that that memorable but they are well done yeah i think he dare i say it is phoning it in a little bit you know i actually think the music video for the song is better i did actually say in my notes that has it gotten a little stale at this point i still like seeing it but it you look at this and they move on to goldeneye and goldeneye has a, a very different aesthetic and i think Mm -hmm. it suits the film a lot more than this does yeah yeah that daniel kleinman did uh, goldeneye and he did the video for license to kill the music video so music uh we did michael kamen recently on an episode under that case you can refer back to that one but he was basically brought in because john barry was having surgery on his throat and was unable to do it. Michael Kamen at the time was hot for doing action films. He'd done Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, um, and he was only the sixth composer to score a Bond film. There's some um, some electric guitars used in it. The interesting thing about the soundtrack is actually the, the, the soundtrack album that was released, because there's only half an hour of material on the album, and it's edited together in a very, very strange way. The tracks feature like different cues spliced together, and actually the, um, the score from the pre-title sequence is split over three different tracks. So it's very, you don't not listening to the movie when you're watching, listening to the soundtrack. It's very strange. But there is one really good uh, cue, which is um, at the end of the album, which is called License Revoked. And it's a nine minute sequence of different action uh, cues. And it's absolutely superb. Well worth a listen. Uh, The soundtrack also has a couple of original songs on it. Wedding Party by a band called Ivory. And this is a weird calypso music from the from the wedding. And then a song called Dirty Love by Tim Feehan, who is a Canadian singer songwriter. Um, it's an interesting soundtrack. It's probably not one of the best. I don't think Richard Maybaum was a was a big fan, as we discussed on the um, uh, Michael Kamen segment in the episode K. Yeah, um, and then so in terms of the the actual song, uh, "License to Kill," it was performed by Gladys Knight, and um, she was actually initially quite reluctant. She's uh, a, got Christian values, and uh, because the the lyrics alluding more to love than sort of death and killing 
she decided to go with it when she'd seen the lyrics and not just based on the title. But the opening notes is the, are the same ones used for Goldfinger in what is basically an homage slash rip-off uh, of, Go- of Goldfinger, mm. really. But Lasting to Kill actually has an end song, and it's a song written by Diane Warren and performed by Patti LaBelle. It's called If You Ask Me To. Now, it's fine. <laughs> I always find it I always find it <laughs> jarring having a, a song at the end of a, of a Bond film. Um, but three years after that, Celine Dion actually covered it um, for her second studio album, and she released it as her second single, and it topped the Canadian charts and uh, got to number four in the US Billboard 100. So she had a, a quite a big success with, with it really and then in terms of uh before they picked that and we've covered this on the michael kamen segment there before it was sub- they submitted a an alternative version and featuring vic flick and eric clapton and it was a a rendition of monty norman's james bond theme but it got turned down as we, as we covered since we recorded that something surfaced on the internet now do we know if that's confirmed well, there's a lot of Bond music professionals have said it's the right one. Uh, John Burlingham, I believe is the chap's name, who wrote a book about Bond music, has said it's what he thought it was. Um, this is on Twitter, mind you, so nothing's verifiable. Mm. But I, I've listened to the track, and it does it does sound both like a Clapton musical track. It has his guitar stylings, and it does sound like a, a Vic Flick like riffs thing going on there as well. It, it does sound like their musical style. So maybe someone's copied them and just made it up, mm. but it sounds good. Yeah, there's a lot of conjecture out there. Vic Flick apparently has has commented saying he it doesn't sound like what he remembered it to sound like. So he's denied that it is. And I've also seen an Eric Clapton like expert saying it doesn't sound like Clapton's playing. But then the the version that was uploaded to SoundCloud and to YouTube has been taken down. Mm. So you've got to think, you know, if someone would wanted it to be taken down, you'd need some legal clout behind mm. you to get it yeah. done. Um, so that seems to me to lend some weight to it being legitimate. And I wonder whether we'll hear it in the 60th anniversary year as part of, you know, they've got that Bond documentary coming out on Apple about the Bond music, whether it's going to be released as part of that. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if that's that's the case, that they just want to keep their powder dry for then. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but it, you can listen to it. It's still out there. You can still find it if you if you really want to. But I also read that Gene Simmons of Kiss was touted to sing a, a theme for this for this song, but um, for this film, but... Uh, they landed on something very different. I, I would take the original over a Gene Simmons stylings of License to Kill, <laughs> I would just say. <laughs> the Kiss version of this song it does not sound good in my head. Oh, the one, the one thing I do, the one issue I do have with this, and actually I listened to Simon Brew's uh, Film Stories podcast on License to Kill, and he made the point that I've thought for ages, it does sound like License to Kill, doesn't it? <laughs> Why would you ruin that for me? But it's ruined forever now, because I have to listen to it every time, so... There you go. You're welcome. <laughs> now, as well as the music, another thing that has to be made for Bond films is the marketing. And one of the most important parts of the marketing is the posters. Now, this film starts a trend that I think at least carries through to GoldenEye, where the teaser poster, in my opinion, is a lot better than the actual finished product, I think. Hmm. Yeah, um, agree. Yeah, the teaser one is like an all-black poster with just Dalton holding up the gun. Uh, very stylish and it just has a tagline and i love this tagline his bad side is a dangerous place to be 
That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Whereas the theatrical poster has like it's in blue it's got like 007s in the middle of it you've got some scenes from the film built in the cast are all sort of cut into it it looks like a sony poster now just a mess but um and it has the tagline of james bond is out on his own and out for revenge i'll I'll take the teaser poster any day Mm -hmm. but um there is some uh hidden artwork out there uh, made by bob peak who made a ton of great artwork in the 70s and 80s when it was actually still uh license uh, revoked he made like some samples it's all hand-drawn stuff and it looks fantastic you can google that and find it to uh, find it around on the internet yeah that bob peak artwork is great right so one thing to say about license to kill is that the marketing campaign beyond the posters and the you know the, the music video and the and, and the song uh, the, the the marketing for this film was absolutely bungled uh, mgm in their wisdom rejected um the marketing campaign by the advertising executive who'd worked on the previous eight bond films um I'm not sure who that was but uh, yeah they basically got rid of what was what they'd hoped for and they also changed marketing agencies quite a few times during post production so when License to Kill actually arrived in cinemas, the marketing was just all over the place. And also the change of the film's title from a License Revoked played havoc with everything because everyone was waiting for the final um, sign-off before they could get moving on it. Early trailers for the film were also very, very strange as well. They were Some of them were narrated with an American voice. There was electronic beats behind it, like giving it an up-tempo like um, rhythm to it. It didn't sound like... Um, John Barry didn't sound like James Bond one of them said uh, James James Bond is used to getting what he wants and but this time he wants revenge there's also one of the trailers has the wrong spelling of license to kill in it also some of the trailers have only credited Michael G. Wilson on the screenwriting duty basically the trailers and the marketing were not unified they weren't sending out a cohesive message and so by the time the film got into cinemas just people weren't that aware of it because they'd sort of completely bungled the marketing. There is one, there's one uh, trailer which I watched, which has a voiceover. It says, this summer, try skin diving, try skydiving, try water skiing, try keeping up with Bond. Timothy Dalton is James Bond 007, licensed to kill. Try skin diving. What was that? <laughs> what does that even mean? Isn't that what Buffalo Bill um, does in Science of the Lambs? <laughs> I think it. I think it is. Um, but yeah, the trailers for this film are, are very, very strange and just didn't do the job, unfortunately. But let's get the film out there. Let's release the film. Yep. Yeah, so it had its premiere at a Royal World charity premiere, and that was on June thirteenth, nineteen eighty nine, at the Odeon in Leicester Square. <clears throat> And then uh, went to wider release uh, from June the 16th uh, and then all over the country from July 14th, 1989. I'm not sure who was who was in attendance to that royal premiere, but I assume it was Dana and Charles as it was most of the 80s. Wheatley's normally on the royal correspondent, isn't he? He's not here. Yeah. <laughs> um, as for the critical response to the film, uh, I think the phrase mixed is probably apt. But uh, if you're looking at sort of the aggregate websites now, contemporarily, you've got, you know, Metacritic, the critic score is 58 out of 100, mixed. Uh, user score on Metacritic is 
That's that's not too bad. Rotten Tomatoes has it as 78% fresh for critics, uh, whereas users rank it as 61%. So it's actually weird. Those two websites have the inverse of each other. Mm. One has the fans liking it more, and then the other, the critics don't. I don't really understand that. But I did a dip sample of some of the uh, actual reviews at the time to get a feel for how mixed it was. Uh, This is Adam Mars-Jones of The Independent, and he said, James Bond is more like a low-tar cigarette than anything else, less stimulating than the throat-curdling gaspers of yesteryear, but still naggily implicating in unhealthiness, a feeble bad habit without the kick of a vice. Can anyone tell me what that means? I guess it's saying you're, it's like you're smoking a low-tar cigarette, which is going to kill you anyway, and it kind of does the same job, but it's still not good for you. Um, it's like it, I forgot to mention as well, this film's got a smoking warning at the end of the film because there's so much smoking in it, hasn't it? It does. Yeah. Whereas the uh, the famous Roger Ebert, love the guy, always always got the finger on the pulse, and actually does for this film. He uh, gives it three and a half stars out of four. The stunts all look convincing. The effects of the closing sequence is exhilarating. License to Kill is one of the best recent Bonds. Yeah, there we have it. But what about the box office? Well, it was released in the UK in June and then in North America in July. And unfortunately, it absolutely stalled at the box office in America specifically. It, It took $34 million and it's the worst performing James Bond film uh, in North America when adjusted for inflation what, or what they call domestically so that's not great in the UK it took 7.5 million pounds that's 19 million pounds in 2022 money um, but at the time that was the seventh most successful film in the United Kingdom at the box office in total it took 156 million dollars worldwide that made it the 12th highest grossing film of 1989 so it was still massively profitable if you consider it cost 32 million and probably the same again to promote it so it's made a healthy healthy profit but unfortunately as as you'll always find when you're talking about license to kill that summer it just went out at the wrong time it was up against lethal weapon 2 ghostbusters 2 indiana jones and the last crusade and batman and it just stood no chance uh, against all of those movies um which were just behemoths at the time at the box office and so subsequently every bond film since has been released in the autumn um rather than in the summer uh, which license to kill was um, so that's why we have that trend now. Just a few things just to mention as well in terms of its release. Um, uh, there was a, a few tie-ins as well, which I have, we haven't mentioned, but there's a video game, a novelization, and a graphic novel as well, which released at the time. And the graphic novel apparently is really, really good. I keep meaning to check it out. Uh, but did it pick up any awards, Brendan? It just got one nomination for an Edgar Allan Poe Award uh, for Best Motion Picture. Yep, I didn't know what it was either. It's uh, it's that that award doesn't exist anymore anyway. It's just the Edgars, and it's basically for novels and and written work. But um, yeah, they got rid of the motion picture award, but it was only nominated anyway. There we go. Right, so onto the final stretch. So we'll put out onto our Twitter account, looking for our followers to give us their three word reviews of License to Kill. First one that came in from John Sadler said Benicio del Toro, which is more of a description than a review. But I'll take it. Um, uh, Adrian Hurley, he said, uh, the Welsh ones. 
Uh, more Roger, please. So he's obviously not a fan. Uh, Nikolai Quack, he has sent quite a few in. I'll just pick um, the best ones here. But best, he's, he said favourite Bond film. Uh, great henchman in ensemble. And winking fish statue. Very good. <laughs> Keir Crozer said most underrated Bond. The James Bond Cocktail Hour podcast, they said original but flawed. And Sleigh Ride said perfect revenge plot. Oh, and just one more from our friends at Wales in the Movies. Bless your hearts. And that is a Joe Butcher quote. So uh, that's very apt. But yeah, I guess what's the what's the legacy of this film? Um, Scott, we'll come to you first. What do you think its reputation is, is like now? Well, I think uh, much like a lot of the works of the 80s and the 90s have been very much reapprised in light of Daniel Craig. Because, and, and people will say this on, you know, Twitter all the time and other Bond spaces that, you know, Timothy Dalton, you know, walked so Daniel Craig could run. And he, he, he went down on that, you know, he, he wanted to be that serious Bond. They wouldn't let him. They weren't quite ready to let go of the Roger Moore of it all. But I think in retrospect, in hindsight now, I think they maybe could have let him run with it for one more film. And I think a lot of people are starting to realise that they were on to something with Licence to Kill. They just didn't have the confidence to commit to it. And I think the problem is is that it came at a critical juncture for the Bond films. You know, with Cubby out of the, out of the picture... Um, they really had to uh, everything was at risk right the whole future of the franchise was at risk and so that cubby went out on the most daring bond film is unfortunate really because had he stuck had he been around he may have had the confidence to you know stick to his guns and, and and do more like this but i think what happened with cubby going out of the picture and michael and um barbara coming in they had to do something a bit more a bit safer perhaps and then obviously the studio with them was hit with this whole legal issue which then delayed the whole thing as well adding more need to return to what they knew best hence why we got the cold war thriller with with goldeneye um but it really has gone yeah. up in people's estimations I, th- I think like you say with with cubby if had they have given more time cubby was full team dalton mm-hmm. he really wanted to give Tal- dalton you know as much time as he needed and, and believed in that project and that direction for the character so yeah i i think it's the great what if of bond isn't it you know the what if of that third film things could have been very different but yeah i, th- I think it does pave the way for what daniel craig ended up doing with the character and and now it's great that we're able to go back and uh and relive that and see see just what Dalton was capable of. It definitely seems to be one that they talk about more or, or at least Eon promotes and pushes more than they ever did in the in the in the mm. in the Piers Brosnan era. It's one of those that never really I, I never really saw on ITV being repeated that much, but now it really is getting the love that it deserves, um, I think. For me, every time I watch it, it gets better for me, I think. Yeah. But I think it visually holds up as well. I think that's really what helps this film is much as you can have a problem with Bond's attitude towards it and going rogue and maybe that's not what you want from Bond. I don't think you can look at License to Kill and say it's not an action-packed thrill ride, which is, I think, what John Glenn was after. Yeah, and and it's got a real, like I said, straight line from start to finish, I think, where something like his other Bond films, I think, struggle a little bit. They, me- they meander a little bit and are hard to sometimes hard to follow. 
Um, I'm thinking specifically like um, Living Daylights, uh, Octopussy, For Your Eyes Only. Maybe not so much of you to a kill, but um, yeah, I think this this really is a laser focused Bond film that you know you could you could put Sean Connery in it and it would like it would be a terrific classic Bond film, I think. So. Shall we talk about ranking the film compared to the others? Now, Scott, you're new to this, unfortunately, mm. but we've done 10 film specials so far. So we've got to basically slot in License to Kill into the 10 that we've done so far. Um, and I'll just give you a quick reminder of where we're where we are at this point. So at number 10, Casino Royale 67. Number nine, Diamonds Are Forever. Number eight, Die Another Day. Number seven, of You to a Kill. Number six, For Your Eyes Only. Number five, Casino Royale. Number four, GoldenEye. Number three, Doctor No. Number two, From Russia With Love. And number one, Goldfinger. So as the guest, Scott, where on that list would you rank it yourself personally? It's actually really tough looking at that list as it stands because there's some I think it's stronger than, but they're higher than ones I don't think it's stronger than. I think that's it goes right. back to Bond being a very personal <laughs> thing. So it's kind of hard for me to like give a number. I, I don't think this is stronger than From Russia With Love. But I would probably watch this before I watched Goldfinger. Dr. No. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. No, I think I, I'd sooner watch this. And so I, I don't want to say like one or two because it's not the best Bond film. I, I, I think it's sitting more like a six for me based on what you've got in the top five. Do you know what I mean? Like in my head, it's better than some of those in the top five, but I I don't want to put it above other it's ones. So, yeah, it's so subjective and it changes all the time, doesn't mm. it? It's um, it's it really is hard to say on the day. But you're putting it at number six, so below Casino Royale, so top six. Yeah, I think so. I I don't think it beats Casino Royale. I don't think it beats Goldeneye or From Russia with Love. But I think it personally, I think it would beat Goldfinger or Doctor No. Interesting, Brendan. Well, I've been getting some beef over this. Every time, the basically the comments are: every time I watch a film, that we do a film episode, and that film, I will put it number one. Now, that's <laughs> this. It's not. It's not. It's got some truth in it, to be fair. And I do want to put this very high. That's the thing. But I know I've got to. I've got to curb myself and not allow myself to do that. And so I think I'm going to agree with Scott and put it in number six because it's not better than Casino Royale. I've got to be completely honest there, and based on that, I can't go any higher than than six. Oh, I'm to- in total agreement with you both. It really could at any any day be number one for me. It could be number two, three, four, or five. But looking at that list, the only divin- definitive thing I can say is that I think it's better than For Your Eyes Only and A View to a Kill. I don't think it's better than Casino Royale, so I think it's it has to go in there at number six. But I feel like it's going to stay top ten by the end. Yeah, it depends if what what you know if Wheatley's got anything to say. I mean, it's a good job he's not here; it'd be bottom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's not a fan, but he's not here, so yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do, Scott, Agent Scott? Thank you so much for joining us as we went on this journey. Um, through License to Kill. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. It's been great having you on as a guest. Um, I've been on your podcast. It was a, it was great to come on and talk about Pierce Brosnan, so it was really good to have you uh, return the favour. But um, 
tell us a little bit about Spy Hards. And you haven't done License to Kill yet, have you? No, I mean, firstly, I, I said it at the beginning, but I do want to thank you for letting me step in for this uh, episode. Um, you know, you had a problem, and I'm uh, definitely more of a problem eliminator. So I, <laughs> I, had, I had to jump on board. And I do like License to Kill. But no, we are... I mean, the, the idea of Spy Hards is every week we tackle a different spy film. Um, but we range from everything. Every single spy franchise to everything in between. We've got Jason Bourne, James Bond, Austin Powers. You name it, we've either covered it or we will cover it. We have a list of about 600 movies we have to get through. Um, and wow. we're only at 80 so far. Uh, of the, uh, This week of recording, for instance, we've just dropped our Diamonds of Forever review. And we've got an interview with Bruce Glover later in the week. Because uh, that's what we also do on the show. So basically every week we have a film. And we decide if it makes the knock list. And the knock list is our need to see official classics. It's a tortured acronym. It's horrible. We stole it from a Mission Impossible <laughs> film. But basically if it's the best spy films of all time. And we're trying to create that list that you could show someone and be like, hey, these, these are all hits. If you like spy films, these are the ones to watch. It means we have to watch a lot of dross, but we like talking about that too. And part of that is talking to the people that helped make the films. So we've had John Glenn on the show. We've spoken to him about License to Kill as well as on Her Majesty's Secret Service. We had a whole interview with him on that. You know, in terms of Bond, you know, we've got Bruce Glover this week. We had Nicholas Meyer who helped out with Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, I'm probably forgetting another one. Oh, we had Rachel Grant who was in Die Another Day uh, as Peaceful fountains of desire i believe that's the one that always slips in my mind but yeah she was she was really great to talk to and um we've got we've got a living daylights interview that i won't spoil but it's one of the main cast that's coming out later this year uh we've just spoken to uh one of the bomb girls from casino royale 67 so that'll be coming out in a couple of months too so we have the interviews that come out with the film to sort of inform how they were made and uh that, that's basically what we do the one that um i that I think maybe caught my attention first of all was one of our dinosaurs is missing, oh. which is a film that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, <laughs> Please don't make me talk about that film again. <laughs> but that was uh, one of my childhood favourites. So, so to hear, hear you giving it a real good kicking was uh, was quite uh, quite fun. You have to really um, have enjoyed that as a child to enjoy that film now. As two uh, middle-aged men, me and Cam, my co-host, uh, sat down to watch it, we were horrified as that's what kids in the 70s were enjoying. But uh, hey, yeah. you like what you like. Um, the, the other one we, we did uh, quite a lot of coverage on was The Avengers from 1998, starring you know, Sean Connery himself. And we had the director on, the, the screenwriter of the film, trying to figure out why it was as awful as it is. And uh, I think we got to the bottom of it by the end. Did you talk about the story about Sean Connery doing a James Bond impression for Ray Fiennes on that. Yes, and also uh, we had that story from the director, Jeremiah Chechik, and also he told the story of they were in the pub and uh, it was Jeremiah Chechik, Sean Connery, and I forgot her name, Eddie Izzard, and the, the person came up to the table and Sean Connery was like, oh, he's going to want an autograph. Chap comes up and goes straight to Eddie Izzard and asks for an autograph. And he didn't even speak to Sean Connery. And I just can't believe that that ever happened. That he would just ignore Sean Connery <laughs> at a table. But <laughs> apparently it happened. So, and this is the kind of stuff we come up with. And, and uh, I really enjoy doing these interviews. I think it really sort of fleshes out the films. Definitely. So you're working the way through the Bond films as well. You haven't, you've just done Sean Connery so far. We've done all of the Pierce Brosnans. 
they're wrapped up. Oh, and the Brosnans, of and course, you, yeah. you came along, of course, valiantly in our hour of need, much as I have this week. So we've exchanged uh, bat signals <laughs> to each other now. I quite like that. Um, uh, so we've wrapped up the Pierce Brosnan era. We've got... We're going to do Never Say Never again soon, and then we'll wrap up Sean Connery. And then I think we're going to look at either going on to... Uh, Daniel Craig or Timothy Dalton. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Well, ahead on the James Bond A to Z podcast, we'll be moving on to Live and Let Die next. Uh, one of my uh, one of my favourites. Um, quick uh, pop quiz though: What links Licence to Kill and Live and Let Die? Felix Leiter. Felix Leiter, of course. But also that they take their both films take inspiration from the Live and Let Die book as well and also they're America set and they involve drugs. So it's interesting that they too films that we'll be talking about side by side um obviously if you're listening to this in uh, chronological order you, this means nothing to you uh, but thank you so much for listening <laughs> if you want to email the show uh you can get us on podcast at james bond a to z.co.uk and if people want to find us on social media brendan at james bond a to z on twitter instagram and facebook and if people want to find you scott where do they get hold of you well, for spies, we're remarkably easy to find. We are everywhere that you get your podcasts. Uh, Spyhards, S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, and on all social media apps. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Scott. And uh, thank you for listening. It just leads me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingomels and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly I know exactly what you're up to and quite frankly you're going to need my help remember if it hadn't been for Q branch you'd have been dead long ago everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.